Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Roger Cohen in conversation with David Laser, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. It's my great pleasure and privilege to be in conversation this afternoon with um, one of the world's finest journalists. Uh, he's a man whose powerful and elegant prose I've admired for years. He's a graduate of Oxford University. He began his journalistic career in 1978 on a startup magazine in Paris before joining the Reuters news agency where he was soon transferred to their Brussels bureau. Five years later, he was hired by the Wall Street Journal and stationed in Rome before being sent to Beirut to cover the crisis in Lebanon. In 1990, he joined the New York Times as their Paris-based European economic correspondent, after which he was appointed the Times Balkans Bureau Chief, where he covered the Bosnian War uh, and the related Bosnian genocide with great distinction. His masterly book, based on that experience, Hearts Grown Brutal, Sagas of Sarajevo, won numerous awards. Through the late 1990s, he was the New York Times' Berlin Bureau Chief before being appointed foreign editor of the newspaper directly after 9-11, where he supervised the Times' Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage. In his tenure as foreign editor, he also planned and directed the paper's reporting and analysis of the war in Afghanistan, a country which I've learnt from his most recent book he first visited in 1973, where he drove a combi van named Pigpen in honour of the keyboardist from the Grateful Dead. To the best of my knowledge, that song's never... Well, that band's never made it to the Taliban's playlist. In 2006... You never know. <laughs> in 2006, he became the International Herald Tribune's first senior editor and since then has been a regular columnist for the New York Times. In all, a foreign correspondent in 15 different countries and the recipient of numerous awards, including an Overseas Press Club Award and a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2012 for his services to journalism. Talk about a long CV... He's the author of four books, including his latest, The Girl from Human Street, which is at once a beautiful and devastating memoir about his mother, June Cohen, as well as a deeply personal examination of Jewish identity. Would you please welcome Roger Cohen? I'd actually just like to start by thanking you for being here because two things. You flew through the night on your birthday. You're in a plane on your birthday, uh, number one. And number two, uh, your father has only just died. And so I think it's um, we're grateful for you to be here. Thank you very much, David. Um, well, yeah, I figure as I boarded the flight in L.A. on August 1 in, and emerged in Brisbane on August 3 and my birthday is August 2, um, <laughs> I, I've remained the same age. So, so this well, strange birthday had its benefit. <laughs> uh, good for you. Look, we're going to circle back to your father yeah, and, of yeah. course, your mother, um, but I thought we should discuss, to start by discussing the world mm -hmm. because uh, sometimes it... And we could spend an hour, I suppose. We could spend an hour on, on the Russian meddling in, in American democracy. We could spend an hour talking about American democracy itself. You called the Brexit a national act of self-harm. We could talk about that. We could talk about the liberating victory of Emmanuel Macron in France, North Korea, the upending of the, of the North Atlantic Alliance, the Syrian war, the Sunni-Shia struggle exemplified by Iran and Saudi and their proxies. Of course, the flight of refugees, climate change. I mean, the world, what's going on in the world right now is momentous. And I know from your book that you say that your only way back to mindfulness and wholeness is writing down the world as you see it. So it's a big question I know to start off with, but how do you see the world right now? Well, I see the world in a very um, combustible state. Um, something entirely new has happened with uh, the arrival of President Trump at the White House. Um, the most fundamental thing, I think, is his complete disregard for the truth. And uh, as you know, any despot wants a disoriented population. 
And when the distinction falls away between what's true and what's false, what's real and what's fake, um, then the danger is that we're all dragged down a rabbit hole when, where 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the only reference is the all-knowing leader, uh, in this case, Donald Trump. Uh, and the United States, as you know, David, has underwritten global security since 1945. So when you have such an unreliable uh, partner, um, and both Angela Merkel and the Canadian government and others, and the transcript, I don't know if you've seen it, but the transcript of Donald Trump's infamous phone call with Malcolm Turnbull uh, has just been published by the Washington Post. It makes very good reading. Um, uh, in the end, Trump grows exasperated and puts the phone down. Um, uh, when the partner grows unreliable, then I think uh, all bets are off because the framework uh, under which we've lived uh, for 70 plus years now um, is fragile. Stephen King said the news is true and the president is fake. <laughs> I thought that was kind of good. Well, according to the president, the New York Times is fake. But thanks to the president, we have 600,000 new digital subscribers uh, in the last six months. So we're actually very grateful to Donald Trump. And our stock, which had been languishing for the last decade, has gone from 12 to 19. We're not supposed to care about these things, but still. Um, no, so, uh, that's a good uh, so people, you know, the millennial generation basically thought that news should be free, right? Uh, why pay for it? And there's a sudden realization that the First Amendment really matters, that tough investigative journalism is not free, uh, and that when the president is calling the press the enemy of the people, and Steve Bannon, his chief strategist, is saying that we should shut up. Well, no, Mr. Bannon, we're not going to shut up. We are not going to shut up, David. And, uh, uh, and there's... It's very exciting, I think, seeing, you know, Steve Bezos, Amazon, bought the Washington Post, so they have immense resources suddenly. And to see the New York Times and the Post going mano a mano on a big story like this, um, I think it's very exhilarating. So of all the things that, the unprecedented things that, that stand out about Trump, the, obviously the constant Twitter abuse, the insults, the lies... One, I think your Times, your newspaper says for every day practically in office. Um, the narcissism, the cruelty, the flouting of conventions, the trashing of alliances, the targeting of Muslims. I mean, it's just we, no, no human being can actually keep up with, what, with what's happening every day. Yeah. You know, the undermining of intelligence agencies, the attacks, as you mentioned, on, on the press. Um, what's the most troubling aspect of his presidency to you? <laughs> well, you know, every time I think that I can't grow more... Look, I'm a naturalized American. Um, I, I love the United States. Um, and I want to respect my president. I really do. Um, I really want to. And I can't. Um, I'm disgusted. I'm disgusted day after day by the way he's sullying and tarnishing um, that office. And um, as I said at the beginning, I think the most fundamental thing is this uh, way he has of trying to... Even recently, he said that um, the president of Mexico and the head of the Boy Scouts had called him, the president of Mexico, to tell him how the border was much better now. And thank you, President Trump. And the, he's obsessed with the, everything he does is the greatest, the biggest, the most wonderful. And uh, the president of the Boy Scouts to tell him that the speech he made was the greatest speech ever made in the history of the universe. Uh, it turned out that, of course, that neither of these phone calls had happened. So Sarah Huckabee, um, his spokeswoman, now that the Scaramouche, Scaramouche is gone after his 10-day tenure, um, uh, you know, was left saying, a lie? Well, that's a bit strong. It's true, these phone calls never happened. Uh, but he did have conversations at some point, so, so it's not completely untrue. This is what we're hearing uh, all the time. I think we now know that Mueller, the special counsel, uh, who is leading the inquiry into possible Russian collusion, collusion with Russia uh, during the campaign, that um, there is now a grand jury. Uh, so, 
you know, that is potentially the gravest element. As you know, impeachment in the United States is not judicial, it's political. And as long as the Congress is dominated by the Republicans, which it will be at least until the summer of next year when we have the midterms, I don't think, um, I mean, Donald Trump will remain president. I think the likelihood is that he will remain president for four years, and there's a possibility that we shouldn't discount that he'll remain president for eight years. But, um, you know, once the Mueller investigation finishes and we get uh, the results of the inquiry by Mr. Mueller, uh, at that point, the pressure could rise. You can be sure he wakes up every morning thinking about that, the president. Uh, he's worried by it. And he tried to get rid of his attorney general in his usual quasi-mafioso way by by uh, insulting him publicly, Sessions. Uh, but Sessions has held firm. Is he unwell? Who? Trump. <laughs> um, he's stout and robust. My daughter, who's a doctor, thinks he's a heart attack waiting to happen. You're referring, of course, to his mind. Um, and I think he's... Um, it's painful watching him because he's... He's so needy, he's so needy, and he's so nasty, and he has such feelings of inadequacy, and he lies, and uh, he pouts, and he pushes people out the way, and he, um, I find it quite painful actually watching him. I think he has, to state the obvious, huge issues. <laughs> um, I... Yes, you know, the Scaramucci, I had this column, my last column actually was, you know, Scaramucci was his spokesman, and the Scaramucci in the Commedia dell'arte of the 16th century was uh, this braggart, really, uh, a combination of a braggart and a coward, which I think sums up not only Scaramucci, but the man who chose him, uh, uh, President Trump. And so I went off on this riff about the Commedia dell'arte, and I... There were these stock characters in the Commedia dell'arte, you know, the old deluded man, the devious servant, the star-crossed lovers. And I, um, I said that Trump, uh, Pantalone, uh, a Venetian who always went around with an oversized codpiece to symbolize his would-be womanizing, um, I think um, that's the character I would choose for President Trump. You actually wrote in that column, what but some profound sense of inadequacy could explain the neediness and the nastiness, the pout and the pettiness, the vanity and the vulgarity, the anger and the aggression. This president gets off on the humiliation of others. He is inhabited by some deep violence to which self-control is a stranger. It is almost painful to watch the degree to which he pursues self-aggrandizement. He confounds masculinity with machismo. As J.K. Rowling put it in a tweet, you tiny, tiny, tiny little man. <laughs> now, this guy has, has uh, this guy controls the nuclear codes. He does, David. Um, look, uh, he's president of the United States. That's um, not an easy thing to become. And, uh, you know, he has very strong political intuitions. And he became the mouthpiece for an anger that he intuited better than anyone else in the United States. And that's why he won uh, the last election. And the 40%, and it's the same with Brexit. I mean, there was just, uh, the Western world was ready for disruption at any cost. And in Britain, it took the form of this extraordinary act of national self-harm, in my view, Brexit. And the United States, it took the form of the election of Trump. And those anxieties, that anger, uh, that diffuse unease with the state of the modern world and the state of Western democracies. That has not evaporated overnight. And despite all the things we're laughing at and are worried about right here today, I think we should recall that the 40% of Americans, uh, his, his base, if you like, there's very little evidence that that has, um, that that has evaporated. And, uh, and so, you know, I think we... But are we, you know, we need to watch the way this involves. Uh, you know, nobody, nobody's mind was ever changed by being made to feel stupid. And there's been this dismissiveness about, liberal dismissiveness, 
of a wide swathe of the American population, among whom there are racists and, and people who are totally um, uh, you know, awful people. But there are a lot of you know, decent Americans and smart Americans who, who think differently. And um, Trump's been, been their man. We'll have to see uh, how that evolves. But the most dangerous thing in the United States right now is the chasm, the chasm. Uh, between uh, blue and red states, between red and blue America. I mean, we have lost any means of speaking to each other, and that's dangerous. I just I want to that leads to violence. Uh, the the end the end point of that so is it's, violence. It's no, we don't share a reality any longer. And I, no, I mean, there's no shared reality. Yeah, exactly. I just want to uh, mention briefly an anecdote um, because my my cousin grew up in Alabama, and I hadn't seen her for 35 years, and she came to Australia for the first time. And this was just after the inauguration of Trump. And uh, we're driving around in the car. I'm showing her Sydney and the conversation turned to politics. And then I suddenly realised that she was a Trump supporter. And I, I, I nearly drove off the road. Um, I, I said, you didn't vote for, for Trump, did you? And, and I actually almost stopped the car and asked her to get out. I, my, my righteous indignation um, was in... in you know, it was it was fulsome and it was large, and and I thought actually that's part of the problem. Mm. Yeah, you know, my righteous indignation. Um, you know, the the so-called elites, yeah. the commentariat, the left, the liberals, what call it what you will, meets their righteous yeah. indignation, and we have no, there no are, there are conversation. No, uh, there are no. How do I convince that she's wrong, though? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, there are no venues of encounter anymore. Fewer and fewer, and of course, it's become a cliche. We're all in our ideological. Canyons are uh, going to the websites or networks that comfort us in what we already believe. And, uh, you know, the last time I think I really had that sense of meeting, well, apart from in my reporting, you know, in Kentucky or Indiana or other places, but when I was on jury duty a few years back, um, you know, you begin and you listen to what people say and you think, are they, are they seeing the same things I'm seeing? Are they listening to the same thing? There is no way we will ever agree. And you know what? After 10 days in the same room and going back and forth, I mean, if you're forced to, um, you know, you can find a way. And I think that those kinds of habits are really being lost um, in the United States. And uh, I don't know what it's like in Australia, if there's that same uh, ideological chasm to, to any degree uh, between... Yes, there is. Um, but I'm sure there is. I think it's a characteristic of all Western societies, certainly in France, where you have the, what they call la périphérie, uh, the, the periphery, um, which um, uh, provides the main backing for the National Front. And this tremendous reaction about... The, I think it's this perception of a rigged system, above all. You know, a system that the global elites have, have conceived and that they have the keys to, and others don't. And uh, it doesn't matter what happens. It can be the 2008 meltdown. It can be the Euro crisis. It can be the war in Iraq. Um, they walk away, and it's this combination of impunity and growing inequality that I think lies behind the crisis of Western democracies. So to get back to my first question then, in yeah. terms of how you make sense of the world, is, yeah. are we, is it, what lens can we look through? Is, it, uh, is, it, is there one lens? Is it the end of the liberal humanist experiment? Is it is it the rise of authoritarianism? Is it the end of republic? Is it, um, I don't know, some kind of counter-reformation? What do you yeah. have a lens through which you see all this? Well, look, the, you know, despite Donald Trump's best efforts, the world hasn't gone over a cliff yet. Uh, but there is a greater danger, of course, of, of war in Iran, a greater danger of war in in North Korea. The situation with Russia is tense, and. I think this president, you know, I just did a long piece about his dismemberment of the State, State Department, Department, which is absolutely shocking. The State Department, uh, and I have known so many, uh, the word noble is not misplaced, foreign service officers over the years in places like Libya and Bosnia, and Chris Stevens, who was killed in Libya, was a friend of mine, and you know, they believed they could make a difference. They believed that America was a force for good in the world. Did America screw up? Yes, of course it did. But gradually, um, the realm of liberty was extended. And, uh, 
And when uh, all you focus on is the military, which is what Donald Trump is doing, and you cut or try to cut the State Department budget by 30%, um, I think that's dangerous. So I think there are a lot of potential flashpoints, and I think he's a president who, if he could have a kind of small to medium-sized war, and I don't know how he'd define that, that he could come back from before 2020 and uh, say he'd won, I think he would love that. Uh, he's enamored of the military, he's surrounded by generals. And now he's got um, former Marine General Kelly uh, trying to bring some order uh, to the White House. And for the first time, anybody who's going in to see the president has to pass through the Kelly filter. Well, we'll see where that leads, because Scaramucci was just an emblem of the man who chose him. I mean, they were very, very similar people, I think. And uh, there's no evidence yet that President Trump can be controlled. Kelly, I think, and, and Mattis had a conversation just recently, or it was reported recently, that neither of them would be outside the country at the same time. Right. That one of them would have to, have to be in Washington. Um, yeah, that's reassuring in that it shows what they think of their boss. Yeah. I just want to bring the, bring the, bring the focus in a little bit because in, <laughs> in this beautiful book, uh, The Girl from Human Street, you write, memory is treacherous. Every war is fought over memory. Violent nationalism is revived memory manipulated as revealed truth. I have concluded that the only truth I can know is my own, which is interesting in a kind of post-fact truth world, the difference between facts and truth. But you go on to say, um, storytellers are trespassers. Mm -hmm. There can be something indecent about what we do, plunderers of others' lives. The faster we move on, the more indecent it is. I've been the chronicler of too many tears. In the end, I came to my own. Tell us about that. Well, David, having, having read your wonderful memoir, I think, we're, I think we're quite similar. And incidentally, I'm privileged to be on the stage with a man who could write. Uh, I wanted to write the great Australian novel, or at least I wanted to write the great New South Wales novel. Um, I think that's an absolutely brilliant line. And I'm who sure also, that wasn't who also, who also, incidentally, uh, survived uh, showing up at school in Sydney, age six, uh, and uh, his mother had packed his school bag, and his ballet shoes were sticking out the Roger, bag. Roger, this is not part of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist recounting that. Sorry, David. Um, no, I think, you know, I... It's my first and last day at ballet. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I... You know, I've been doing this for quite a while. I've been in many war zones, and I'd always been drawn, I guess, to people who'd who'd lost something, who'd, who'd lost brothers or sons, or drawn in the sense that I wanted to tell wider stories through individual stories, and I was interested in people's psyches and what those psyches reflected about wider conflicts in the regions uh, in which they lived, and then. At a certain point, you know, there's always the adrenaline, especially in war, the adrenaline of going in the opposite direction from everybody. You're going into Sarajevo. Everybody else is going out of Sarajevo. You're trying to get into Beirut. Everybody else is trying to get out of Beirut. Everyone thinks you're crazy, but you're not crazy. You want to find out what's going on, and the only way you can find out what's going on, in my view, is to get your boots on the ground. Uh, the view from the ground, uh, in Martha Gellhorn's phrase, is the only view... Uh, that counts for a journalist. And a journalist's job, at least in my view, is to bear witness. And that's it. And you can't bear witness unless you're there. And so there's all that adrenaline. But then I started thinking, well, hang on a second. You know, yes, I'd had this. My parents were immigrants in Britain. They'd come from South Africa. Their parents had come from Lithuania. They'd fled the pogroms. Uh, my family had, uh, at least my maternal family had done very well in South Africa. You know, my father hated apartheid. They left, they came to Britain, post-war Britain. And so my own story actually, it struck me, was despite the privileged upbringing I'd had uh, in Britain, um, I began to think about my, because in the United States we think about immigration as, um, as, as new beginnings, new opportunity, uh, and that's its bright star. Um, but the dark sun, 
or uh, the black sun even, is, um, is lost, is leaving something behind, is the immense effort it takes to begin again. And I began to think about you know, the loss in my own life, the loss of certain traditions, Jewish traditions, the loss of you know, the home in South Africa before that, and how that had um, refracted down through generations, and in particular had led, I thought anyway, to my mother's breakdown, uh, crack up, uh, soon after she reached Britain. And um, she died in 1999, but I, her story had haunted me, and I, I just thought, well, the most dangerous state for me actually is not Beirut or Sarajevo. The most dangerous state for me is to turn the lens this way and try to grapple with um, who I really was and where I'd really come from. Your mother was the girl from Honey Street. Your Human Street. So, yeah. Sorry, Human yeah. Street, and your father was the boy from Honey Street. That's right. right. So, which is kind of a sweet, lovely image. But it, it is, it, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it was turbulent and, and combustible because your mother actually carried, it seemed carried this kind of epigenetic loss. Lithuanian Jews who, had, she wasn't part of that migration, but she, I think she carried in her genes, and your father as a scientist, actually just sort of mapping of Yeah, of he family. did it. Uh, I mean, one of the spurs in the end to writing my book was sort of trunk in the attic story. And my father had, in the 70s had bought a very remote farmhouse in Wales, which place of incredible beauty, but also a place of great remoteness and windy and wet and really the antithesis of everything my mother loved, which was the South African sun, and if failing that, the Mediterranean sun. And Anyway, in an attic there, um, I found, I opened this trunk, and there were my dad's uh, annotations of um, my mother's illness, and particularly the build-up to her most serious suicide attempt in 1978, and uh, you know what had happened each day, and the drug she was on, and she was manic-depressive, so the, the, the manic phases, the depressive and then he'd drawn a family tree with a black dot beside every member of the family who'd suffered some form of mental breakdown, mental illness. And there were more, uh, more relatives with black dots beside their names than not. But just to give some framework to this, um, I mean, what happened was that um, my parents arrived in Britain in, uh, definitively. I was born in London in 55. We went back to South Africa for two years, and then they definitively emigrated in, in 1957. And uh, actually, my dad was advised by a relative before leaving that he should change his name because Cohen was much too conspicuous a Jewish name for him to have any hope of success in Britain. My dad said, really? You think so? Oh, yes, darling, no way. No way you can, can go ahead called Cohen in Britain. It's not going to work. So he said, okay, I'll go away and think about it. And he came back a couple of days later. And, darling, so what have you decided? Well, I thought about it long and hard, and actually I think you're right. That's wonderful. Very wise decision. What are you going to change your name to? Einstein. <laughs> uh, uh, so... <laughs> That was the end of that. Um, my, my dad was not a religious Jew at all, but he was, um, he was not about to change his name. In any event, they arrived in Britain in 57, and uh, the year my sister was born. And uh, very shortly afterward, uh, my mother cracked up and went into what was then called post-puerperal psychosis, now called generally postpartum depression. And she had a very um, acute case of it and disappeared uh, into psychiatric hospitals. I was then age two, uh, on and off for the next two years. And this whole story, um, I mean, obviously I was too young to remember, remember it, but of course I remembered it inside. I, it was an immense trauma. And, uh, and this... You know, what had happened to my mother really, uh, it was buried, like our past, like Lithuania, all that. It was just suppressed. Uh, we, 
you know, we'd been in Britain since the Norman Conquest. It wasn't quite like that. I'm exaggerating. But, uh, you know, I sat in Westminster. I went to Westminster School, one of the great private schools in Britain. And I was sitting in the Abbey. I didn't pray, but I sat there. And, uh, you know, that's where the coronation of William the Conqueror took place. I mean, Britain, until the folly of Brexit, was a place of great continuity. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I, it, I didn't know. I didn't. Really, it never occurred to me that two generations back, uh, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, lived in a shtetl. Um, so, uh, in any event, my mother. This was suppressed, and um, and then in my sort of seventeen, eighteen, my mother started to. She came home. She was always fragile. I likened her in the book to a tree hollowed out by lightning. She was loving, but it was hard for her to give love. Um, and um, and then at age 17, 18, it, it started to, she started to break down again. And that's when we heard for the first time, like from my father, you have to be careful, you know, your mother, what? Your mother had a breakdown before. Oh, really? You know, we didn't, we didn't really know. And so part of the exploration of the book um, was to find out what had happened to my mother. So I conceived of it as a wider Jewish odyssey of the 20th century, and within it, a chronicle of my mother's particular loss and pain. And uh, that's what I tried to weave together in the book. You're right, when a, when a parent... I think this is actually kind of the genesis of the book in these words. When a parent dies unhappy there is something unresolved that keeps nagging. It is irrational to want to save my mother from her torment, and now I can't anyway. Still, because of her, I have to go back. And, and when we do go back as a reader, and when we go back looking at history, and we look at the great flight of Jews from Lithuania, this is pre-Nazi days, and then, of course, the methodical extermination of, of Jews in, in Lithuania, where I think you... And, La and Latvia, where some and, of your parents, Latvia, were, yeah. relatives were killed. Um, special, you know, killing squads and, you know, the anti-Jewish hatred was all already there. Um, so y y your mother was was spared those horrors, but the strain of the upheaval, this is what I'm, I find so fascinating, the strain of the upheaval and the displacement and the horror is something she carried in her. And I suppose that applies to, when we look at the 60 million people who are, who are, traversing the globe now trying to find a place to live and, and all of the places where calamity prevails, this loss that people are mm. carrying. And, and you've written about um, our asyl asylum seeker policy and uh, you've been very, um, you've been condemnatory, I think mm. I agree with you on, on our policy. Do you think you're more sensitised to this kind of displacement, this wandering, because of your own experience with your mother and your father and your family history? I think I am. Um, again, that only really occurred to me quite late on. And I began to think, why was I relating so strongly uh, to these stories? And, and I think, um, you know, our fa my family has been displaced each generation uh, for the last several generations, uh, beginning in Lithuania, South Africa, Part of the family went to Israel, Britain. Now, I'm an American citizen. Uh, I have two grandchildren, Max and Will Cohen, age three and one, who live in Saigon uh, in Vietnam. So the odyssey uh, continues. Um, but yeah, I, th I think, look, can I prove, David, scientifically that my mother would not have cracked up if she'd stayed in South Africa? Uh, no, I can't. But I do know that within the cocoon of new South African wealth that my um, forebears had created, my mother felt very comfortable. Uh, she was at home there. And I know that in the latter years of her life, she was always craving to be in South Africa and going back to South Africa whenever she could. And I think arriving in post-war Britain with its rationing and putting coins in the slot... Uh, for hot water and a very hard-driving husband, um, who incidentally, while called Cohen, was appointed commander of the British Empire, fellow of the Royal Society, had a very distinguished career 
uh, in Britain, so proving that relative uh, entirely wrong. Uh, and um, I think it was too much for her. So yes, I carry that, you know, inside me. It's there too. And I mean, I I became an American. Uh, I my home is now New York City. Um, but again, you know, beginning again, I think is an, I think you know what is one of the most fundamental. I mean, I think we all we all want to be loved, and we all want to love. Uh, that is absolutely fundamental to the human psyche, I think. And not far behind that, I think we want and we need to belong. We need to belong to some small patch of earth. It might be just that bit of grass right down there. But if you've looked at that patch of grass uh, for your whole childhood or your whole upbringing, then that patch of grass is sacred to you. It is sacred. It is where you belong. It is... It is yours. And if you're uprooted from that, uh, I think it is possible to begin again. I just don't want to underestimate the psychic effort involved for people like you and me, you know, who are born in, or your father who, who, who fled Germany, um, you know, age 13. Uh, you know, I'm sure very fundamental to him and, the, and to you and to me, um, you know, is, is this... Um, you know, this sense of loss is there, and this quest to find a place that's yours, I think, is very fundamental. I just want to turn to our fathers or fathers because um, you've just lost yours. I lost mine two years ago. Um, and you wrote a beautiful column on the loss of your father, Sidney, Sidney Cohen. Um, I just want to quote from it. The column was actually called Sons Without Fathers. There is no preparation for the loneliness of a world from which the two people who put you in it have gone. The death of parents removes the last cushion against contemplating your own mortality. The cycle of life and death becomes internal, bone-deep knowledge, a source now of despair, now of inspiration. The earth acquires a new quality of silence. How's that silence speaking to you right now? Well, um, I guess um, above all in uh, in contemplating nature, um, whether it's this magnificent beach uh, in the early morning when when nobody's on it and the sun's rising, and um, or you know the mountains of Colorado. Uh, where I was recently, and uh, you know, I I feel my I feel my father in all that. You know, he's he's um, he's um, merged with all of that now, and uh, uh, I think you know, a parent, however little you may see him, and I, I you know, I'm very thankful for for some very um, intense. And beautiful moments with my dad at the last, but he had grown very remote, and the story is complicated because of my mother's um, illness and you know what their forty-nine year marriage became, and then his subsequent remarriage and eighteen years of, of that relationship. Um, but uh, yeah, I think. Um, However, however remote a parent might be, a parent is there, <laughs> and it's it's somehow protective. And uh, you know, my grandmother lived to 104. Used to say, uh, "We're in the line of fire now, darling." <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're in the line of fire. You know, <laughs> and uh, it's different. Um, it's different. And I think you. You know, you think of your own mortality and you, you know, if you're a writer, if words are your thing, you think, okay, you know, best case scenario, X number of years, you know, what, what do I really want to do? You know, what, what matters at this point? What, what's important? What's not? You know, what aspects of journalism, you know, have I done enough of? You know, which aspects still hold something that's valuable and that, I'd like to pursue further. Um, I think those kinds of internal accountings become pretty intense. 
just one of those anecdotes about your father, which seems worth pointing out that he was a scientist, a man of science and a specialist in malaria, and he, he actually met the first baboon to ever arrive in the UK, mm. and he met that baboon at Heathrow Airport. Can he you did, yeah. Just take us through that. <laughs> yeah, well, he was... Uh, he made a, a breakthrough... Um, Discovery about uh, based on research in Gambia uh, in the early wrote a, a paper in Nature in 1961 which is still cited um, and um, I mean his hope of finding a vaccine for malaria in general was frustrated by the uh, extraordinary mutability of the parasite which has confounded researchers to this day nevertheless it was a very important uh, breakthrough and he. Um, he was conducting experiments with um, with monkeys, and he brought this baboon uh, to Britain, and he met the baboon, or two baboons, I think, and met them at, at Heathrow. And he told this story about um, he wanted to get something for the baboons on arrival, and he went to uh, a fruit and veg place <laughs> somewhere near Heathrow, and, and he said, uh, I'd like... Uh, Four pounds of bananas, please. And the shopkeeper said, I'm terribly sorry, sir, we don't have any bananas. And my dad said, okay, well, I'll take four pounds of carrots then. And the guy gave him a very curious look. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other thing with the baboons was that they eventually they went to London Zoo. And uh, he told me that a year later, maybe, he, he went to London Zoo. And the baboons went berserk. Uh, they saw him. They rushed to the front of the cage. And they were shaking the cage. And people didn't understand what was going on. So, And they pushed his assistant over, didn't they? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, They, they remembered Sidney Cohen. So uh, <laughs> he was a friend of baboons. Actually, his PhD thesis, and I've never understood this, was on the menstrual cycle of baboons. <laughs> <laughs> was there any, anything that we, anything useful for us to know in that? <laughs> I'm sure there is, David, but right now I can't think of what that might be. <laughs> you know, there's a great, great passage in your book where you, you know range all over the place in this conversation. But I'm just going to go off on a tangent again. You write that Jews often ask how the Holocaust was possible how an entire civilized nation could turn on them, how so many people could look away as their neighbors were herded towards stations and boxcars that would usher their doomed loads to the gas, how indifference could overcome outrage and ordinary folk become murderers. South Africa is instinctive in this, regards, in this regard. Of course, Hitler's rise to power occurred in specific historical circumstances. German humiliation and disarray fed the search for a scapegoat, just as the post-war rise of the National Party in South Africa exploited Africana insecurity and grievance. But the human traits that buttress violent systems of racist oppression, fear, envy, tribalism, resentment, conformism, opportunism, are universal and enduring. Inject the virus of hatred with violence if need be, and it will find tissue on which to propagate. So all of us are capable of it. Yeah, I think um, I think um, I wouldn't say potentially yes. Uh, um, I mean, the redemptive thing is that in situations like that, um, there are people who um, will say no. There aren't many of them um, when the risk of doing so is that of losing your life. Um, but there are people who will stand and be counted. And I think um, our humanity, in some very fundamental sense, um, hinges on that. And uh, you saw it in Nazi Germany. I was interested in the, my book with um, in the Jewish community in South Africa and how they'd responded to a, a, a system of uh, appalling racist oppression 
And, um, you know, there were some in my family who said, uh, you know, the reason the Jews... South Africa was a good place to be for Jews in the 20th century. And some in my family who went along said, uh, you know, if you're busy persecuting 30 million blacks, you don't have much time left over for 100,000 Jews. Uh, the blacks were a buffer. Um, now, it has to be said that Nelson Mandela's lawyers were nearly all Jews, that proportionately there were more Jews in South Africa who uh, resisted apartheid. Um, my dad left, hated it, thought it was a colossal waste of human potential. Uh, but, you know, in situations like this, there, there are the active enthusiasts, there are the bystanders. The majority are bystanders. They go along, they try to draw some profit from it. Um, and then you have the few who, who resist evil. And uh, um, often at a very heavy price. But, you know, if you, if you think about the Rwandan genocide from one day to the next... Yeah, well, uh, I saw teachers it. turned against students, and yeah. and uh, do doctors and nurses turned against patients, and neighbor turned against neighbor. Uh, well, I saw it in mm. Bosnia. You know, I mean, <laughs> Serbs, Croats, Bosnian Muslims, under Tito, they had no idea. I mean, they all lived next to each other, and then Milosevic, Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian nationalist leader, at the moment of the breakup of Yugoslavia, decided that the Serbs were not getting enough of the territory, that they should, there should be a greater Serbia. Uh, and, um, and so the Serbs started killing and uh, rounded up in the first six months of, well, between April and October of 1992, rounded up hundreds of thousands of Muslims in Bosnia and killed a lot of young men, processed... Uh, others through concentration camps, not extermination camps, but concentration camps. You know, if your neighbor <laughs> points a gun at you, it doesn't take very long. I mean, the virus propagates very, very quickly. And once the virus is installed, uh, it's very hard to uh, remove it. I think you've written somewhere that that experience during the Balkan War um, changed you profoundly. How so? Well, it, um, you know, I, I felt, um, you know, I saw so many acts of um, individual courage and uh, um, it made me think about, you know, what was, what was most important, you know, what was most important in life. I remember a man called Dusan Tadic, who had been a famous actor in Sarajevo, and he'd had both his legs blown off. He was actually half Serb, half Muslim. But he'd stayed in Sarajevo, and he'd had both his legs blown off uh, by a Serbian shell. And he was lying in hospital in Sarajevo. And uh, on the floor below him, his mother, his, sorry, his wife was giving birth to their third child. And all he could think about was killing himself. And uh, we were speaking, he was... Somehow I'd found a bottle of Scotch whiskey and he was going through it at a great pace. But anyway, you know, his father came to see him and, uh, and said to him, uh, you know, Dusan, a child needs his father, even if he's just sitting in the corner. A child needs his father even if he's just sitting in the corner. And that phrase um, enabled him to live. And there were lots of, you know, lots of moments like that. And... Uh, they just made me reflect on on my priorities, and I think indirectly they they led to this book and this exploration. And uh, you know, the book I think above all gave me you know greater acceptance of you know of what had happened. And I discovered you know what happened to my mother. I mean, I'd never known. Uh, I applied under the Freedom of Information Act for her medical records, and there were fragments of her records from those two years. Not much. But enough for me to know, for example, that uh, two days before my third birthday, um, she had electric shock treatment, which in those days, I don't know if you've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or 
read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, but in those days, you know, you were strapped down. and So I can see my mother. I know where my mother was on the eve of my third birthday. And you might ask, well, why the heck would you want to know that, Roger? Um, and I, I suppose a lot of people uh, would not want to know that. But all my experience of life and of covering war and is that if you suppress things, if um, they come up, often in violent form. And so I think it's better to know, and painful as it is to know these things, it, I think it has given me a degree of acceptance um, that I didn't have. I'm still grappling with its psychological impact on me. I mean, I think it was enormous. Yeah, because you write for as long as... As long as you can remember, you've wanted to tell stories and that the stories you sought were the small ones that revealed large ones. You looked for history refl uh, as reflected in a single psyche, the imprint of the past. You chose the profession of the onlooker, always waiting to get inside, a closed room, a situation, a mind or a soul in order to uncover some truth. It was beautiful when it happened because it gave you a sense of resolution. Did this give you a sense of resolution? Yeah, it did to, it did to some degree. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm grappling with where I want to go with my writing. I, uh, um, a column is a very tight form. You know, it's an immense privilege to have a column for the New York Times. I can go anywhere in the world at any time. Nobody will ask me what I'm doing, what I'm going to write. But 800 words, I mean, the, it's pithiness. It's an idea, or preferably maybe two ideas, an idea and a half. And um, succinctness, um, there's very little room for descriptive writing, narrative writing. On the other hand, you have this incredible bully pulpit, where if you think President Trump is very bad for the United States, you can say that in no uncertain terms, week after week, or I believe very strongly in the Iran nuclear deal. You know, there are things that, on which you can make a difference, but I am... I've been doing it for a while now, and um, I think what I'd really like to do at this point is try to write a good novel. So I have an idea, and maybe that's where I'll go next. <laughs> when your father, um, your father was actually very, very reserved, wasn't he? And, and more and more with time, yeah. But as a boy growing up, I think you you struggled with that reserve. And then this particularly early memories, not so much, but particularly from about age yeah, 10, 9, 10, yeah. But then when your mother died, he was yeah. convulsed with, yeah. with sobbing. Yeah, that was an extraordinary moment. Um, I mean, my dad, uh, uh, yeah, he broke down completely when my mother died. He was convulsed with grief and sobbing. And uh, he said it was like falling in love again. And... Um, my dad had had, um, he had a double life. Um, there was somebody else, and we kind of knew, but didn't know the specifics. And, uh, and uh, so he'd been living under this huge, and that was the way, I mean, my mother survived suicide by a miracle in 1978, then survived a less serious attempt in 1982, and then was manic depressive, really, for the last 20 years of her life. And... I don't know if any of you have lived with anything similar, but it imposes an immense strain. And, you know, my dad's way of, you know, the French say, to comprendre, c'est tout pardonner. To understand everything is to pardon everything. And uh, life is lived forwards, you know. Life is, it's easy in retrospect to say this or that decision by an individual grappling with a very difficult situation was the wrong one, but... Uh, the more I explored, the more I wrote, the more I grappled with, you know, my... And it, you know, it caused great pain, there's no question. Um, anyway, uh, when my mother died, uh, it was like a great edifice collapsing, and, and my dad was undone, and it was a shattering, uh, powerful thing to experience to be with him then. And there were a very beautiful period of a couple of months with my sister and I and him and of great closeness and um, you know then the other life emerged and things became more difficult. You spoke at her funeral and I'm wondering I mean the passage that you quote from speaking at her funeral the Golders Green Cemetery your description of her is, is wonderful and I just wonder whether you mind actually giving us a short reading 
the bits uh-huh. that I've got underlined. Um, I can on try. <laughs> 221. Excuse the dark glasses, but. <laughs> so this, this, yeah. Um, you know, I said I tried to say something of the light and the shadow. The air of the earth is sweeter, lighter, softer, because your spirit now resides in it, whispering in the damp breezes of our winter. How gentle you were, gentle in thought and action, your hand in mine, always so soft and searching. How kind you were to the family you loved, to the treasures that are your six grandchildren, to your many friends, and often to people you hardly knew. Kindness, you thought, was a much undervalued virtue. Another was humility. You understood the meek of this earth. Mama, you were strong in the end. It said that people struggle against cancer. But you did not struggle. You defied the illness with your courage, mocked it with your dignity, and overpowered it with your fearlessness. I cannot imagine that anyone ever went more graciously, more calm and open-eyed into the light. Her strength as she often said, came in the end from love. Her life was about love, the love she felt for Sydney, her husband, father to Jenny and me. This love was uncompromising and greater than any suffering. However hard the world, she persisted. Of Sydney she felt, as Browning wrote, I shall but love thee better after death. My mother loved and gave with an immense heart and held fast to her truth. When the spring comes as it will, I will feel her beside me in the brightness of the new leaves, leaves as delicate as the blessing of her memory. Beautiful. And and then there's a a passage that I've underlined when your father responded to what you had written about your mother, and I wonder whether you could read that too. You know, it's interesting, David. Um, I mean, I will read it. I mean, now my dad is gone, but uh, I think, you know, painful. I mean, my mother's story was immensely painful, and that's what I. You know, she was also strong, and there was a message of hope at the end. But um, you know, I've always found this passage, I think, the most difficult to read because I had this immense closeness, you know, with my dad early in my life, and then, you know, progressively. Uh, he withdrew, and it was a very mysterious withdrawal. I never, I never fully understood it. Um, it seemed to me that he turned his back on so much that could have been very rich for him, including, you know, grandchildren, great grandchildren, and uh, and until this last moment with him, when he told me, you know, it was a very moving moments of. Uh, when he told me about his love for me and uh, talked about, uh, uh, talked very in a very intimate way, and uh, I mean very briefly, fragment. So, um, so this moment when he opened up was um, was very. It was. It's always been quite hard for me to read. Anyway, this is the letter my dad wrote to me after my mother died. Or part of it, and it reads. Now that mum's life is spent, we are each of us left with the pain and turmoil of personal accounting. I agree with you that this should be a time of gentleness. For mum, there was always a need for tenderness and gentle compassion. And all of us are left with stark memories of our failure to satisfy this innocent, almost childlike requirement of her psyche. Your expanding memories of mum have become infinitely precious and important. I share with you the vision of a light which is the obverse of her tormenting darkness and which in some miraculous way has become completely dominant since her death. I hope and pray that this vision of her will be an enduring source of strength and inspiration to you in all the years ahead, ever cherished and unsullied. For myself, I did have a fleeting dream of a few tranquil years carrying me into the sunset. I still hope for that in a mental and bodily sense, but I know that my spirit will not soon be released from those cruel demons that tore so relentlessly at the entwining fabric of love between mom and me. 
I did strive within the feeble limits of my human fallibility to preserve and cherish and sustain her. But alas, for Mama, ultimately, death was the only angel that could shield her from despair. My beloved boy, the matchless eloquence of your writing speaks vividly of how painfully you had to probe and what anguish heaped with torment you suffered. I hope with all my heart that before too long the turbulence of your spirit will subside and you will reach to tranquility in your inner self. That too was Sidney Cohen. <laughs> well, here's to the fulfillment of your father's wishes. Thanks, Roger Cohen. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.